0: I would invite you to look to that psalm that Pastor Shirley read earlier, Psalm 138. Today, as you see, we commit Pastor Serena, Jeff, and their family to the call they sense God has placed on their lives. As they begin this new um, pastoral ministry and adventure, They need the God for today. They don't need the God that they had yesterday. They need the God for today. They don't need the God that they will need tomorrow. They need the God for today. Graduates are celebrating or getting ready to celebrate a new chapter. And we're proud of our graduates. But ahead of them, are the unknowns we all face. They need the God for today. Each one of us faces the stressors and the curves life throws at us. I I wish that um, life would stop throwing those knuckle curveballs at us. How do we stay the course day by day, sometimes moment by moment? We all need the God for today, We need the God for today right now. Well, Psalm 138 is the psalm of the day. And in it, the poet captures what it's like to live in a world and in a life much like our own. And in it, we discover the God for right now. And so may God open up our hearts to his word today from Psalm 138. Now, have you ever walked a path at night where the shadows took on a devilish appearance and caused your anxiety level to rise? Maybe it's in a strange place, a strange location. Maybe it would have, might have been even walking through your own house and it was dark and all of a sudden you were scared by something or in some way the shadows around you were creating that anxiety. Well, the path of life can be like that in some ways. It could be like that where joy and hope seem eclipsed by world events or the local news or maybe personal circumstances. And sometimes, sometimes, God seems uninvolved. I think sometime I'm going to preach a sermon titled The Uninvolved God. Sometimes he seems so very distant from the daily grind. Well, how do we respond to that? Well, there are two responses that are equally insufficient for us at that point. The first is this. It's the optimism-biased faith. Now, if you're familiar with optimism bias, optimism bias is when someone believes that they are less at risk for experiencing a negative event than someone else. Now, I'm not opposed, don't don't hear in this, that I'm opposed to being positive and upbeat and optimistic. That's just far from the truth. But... Faith that's rooted in an optimistic bias causes us sometimes to not face the truth of a given circumstance. And sometimes faith becomes so optimistic that it becomes faith in faith, not faith in God. We knew a pastor many, many years ago who became ill. She believed That all she needed to do was declare that her faith was to be healed. Declare by faith that she was healed. And so she did that. And so on the basis of faith, she stood up and said, I am healed of my cancer. Her family and their faith was left reeling at the funeral. Not too many weeks later. That's faith with an optimistic bias. But then there's the other reaction, the other side of the coin, if you will, and that's the pessimism bias. faith. It's the side of the coin that can only see the downside of the equation. With the focus on what is not, the tendency with that pessimism-faith is to make the circumstances define the nature of God himself. And so then every time a negative situation happens to us, we put God on trial. It's interesting to me that we're very easy to put God on trial for the negative things, but sometimes we don't assign to him all the wonder and the glory and the gratitude for the good things. But it is those times when we see through a glass darkly that we're most prone, all of us are most prone to a pessimistic faith. But the poet of Psalm 138 offers us a realistic faith in the God for today. And this is how he does that. The first thing I think he does is he gives us an invitation. And in fact, all through this, we find invitations. An invitation to see God beyond what we see. What do you see in your world? What do you see? None of us are immune. No one is granted immunity from the perplexities and the pain and the unsolvable nature of this human life and this fallen world. None of us. Optimism or pessimism-biased faith both crumble in a world like ours. We need faith to face the reality of the tensions we have. And the psalmist, as we heard Pastor Shirley read, he implies struggle in the middle of what he's declaring, he implies a worldview, <clears throat> a worldview that conflicts with faith in God, much like our world. A troubling world events or local happenings or personal circumstances, difficult people, difficult relationships, I mean, the trouble that he's speaking of, the antagonism against God, the enemies he names, those are all real. Whenever we're reading the Psalms, we've got to remember that he's dealing with real enemies. He's dealing with real darkness. He's dealing with real struggle. It's all real. A faith that does not acknowledge that is not able to acknowledge God's supremacy over it. But also a faith that sees nothing but the struggle will then struggle to see God's hand in it. So faith is at its greatest depth declaring and holding to God when before us, in front of us, seems like evidence for only complaint and despair and essentially a sense of God's absence. And that's why the people of God have this great need always have had this great need and always have declared the answer to this great need of knowing that God is with us right from the beginning. We hear Moses say to the people of Israel at a time of transition and challenge these great words from Deuteronomy. Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them. For the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you nor forsake you. Jesus echoes that for the disciples of all ages and that probably must have been a confusing time after the resurrection. And he appears to them, he says, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I have always been, challenged is probably not the word, but pulled, pulled upward and pulled forward by these words from Dallas Willard with this magnificent God positioned among us, Jesus brings the assurance that our universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. Now that's quite the opposite of the way we view life in the world. We often set up this, this dichotomy of the world and us, and that's bad, and we need to go over here to God, and that's good. But, but hear that. With this God positioned among us, Jesus brings the assurance that our universe is a perfectly safe place for us to be. So if we go looking for safety outside of God, we're not going to find it. And that's not because of circumstances. That's because of his presence. And we're invited to trust that presence, his presence with us. Listen to what the psalmist says. Verse 6, though the Lord is exalted, he looks kindly on the lonely. Though lofty, he sees them from afar. How amazing is that? The the mighty don't associate with the lowly. But the God of the universe does what, (laughs) let's just say, what gods are not supposed to do. You see, he sees and he cares for the lowly. And isn't that what Jesus did? Isn't that what Jesus did as he he looks upon us and when his presence enters into our earthly sufferings? And doesn't that change the way we see life when we know that God sees us, God cares for us, God's presence is with us, whether we feel it or not? You know, the 14th century writer Julian of Norwich said this. For it is God's will that we believe that we see him continually. God wishes to be seen, and he wishes to be sought, and he wishes to be expected, and he wishes to be trusted. That's our God. We're invited here to see him beyond what we see. What do you see? What do you see? Where are you looking? Where am I looking? He wants us to see him beyond what we see, trust him there. And here's what we see. We can trust that God is here now. But then the second invitation is an invitation to believe in what can be. I would say this is a very New Testament invitation placed in an Old Testament text. Living in the kingdom that is and is yet to be, as we do, the kingdom isn't somewhere out there we're waiting for. His kingdom has come in Christ. So living in the kingdom that is and is yet to be can often be a struggle. But faith in Jesus is faith in the God of resurrection. And that means, as this paraphrase puts it, we live in the presence of the God who creates out of nothing and holds the power to bring to life what is dead. That's the God we serve. Now, this psalm is not guaranteeing to us good things will happen. This psalm is not blissfully going along completely oblivious to other realities. In fact, in verse 7, this is what he says, though I walk in the midst of trouble. This is all happening in the middle of trouble for him. But this psalm invites us to let our faith pull us to a hopeful future and a hopeful picture. To pull us to God's preferred future. To pull us. I don't know about you, but I need to be pulled. I need the grace of God and the Spirit of God sometimes to pull me into a hopeful future. And that's what this does. Now, in the NIV translation that Pastor Shirley read, verse 8 says, It uses the word vindicate. That word, that Hebrew word, literally has the idea of accomplishes all that it undertakes. It finishes. I think the New Revised Standard captures what it's saying. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. The Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Can I just encourage you to make this a regular part of your prayer life? Lord, may my life be an expression of your purposes. May my life be an expression of your purposes. And in that, fulfill his purposes and his purpose through you. A number of years ago, Jason Gray penned a song that it hit me at a right time. And every once in a while, I find my way back to it. And the song is called Nothing is Wasted. Hear the lyrics. Nothing is wasted. Nothing is wasted in the hands of our Redeemer. Nothing is wasted from the ruins, from the ashes. Beauty will rise from the wreckage, from the darkness. Glory will shine. Nothing is wasted. This psalmist is walking in the middle of trouble, and yet he's declaring this activity of God. Nothing is wasted. This is indeed a psalm for resurrection people. And what this psalm does and what this truth does, it allows us to declare those words, words we have a love-hate relationship with. We all know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him who have been called according to his purpose. We have a love-hate relationship with Romans 8.28. It's one of the most misused and abused Passages of scripture, something horrible happens, and someone stands up and says, Well, we all know Romans 8:28, all things work together for good. And we walk away and we say, Really? Is that the kind of God we have? These words have been misused and abused. As we live in the tension between what we see and what we hope for. And each of our life stories, my friends, will continue to have chapters, moments of trouble and distress and pain and disappointment. But I think perhaps the Passion Translation captures this resurrection meaning of what these words really are about. It says this, so we're convinced that every detail of our lives is continually woven together for good. I love that. For we are his lovers who have been called to fulfill his design purpose. But there's this picture of God. So in my house these days, I've watched the amazing creativity of these three precious women in my life. Kathleen, Mary-Kate, and Carissa. They're all getting ready for Carissa's wedding next week. So I'm watching them make stuff out of nothing. You know, I bring my stick figure level of creativity to the table. And they're they're taking, like, jars and making amazing things out of them. And they're taking, you know, stuff that I would just, you know, I'm ready to throw away. And all of a sudden, something beautiful appears. They're taking what they have, and they're making something beautiful. And here we have this picture of a god who takes the strands of life and weaves for us, we, turns us into a tapestry of his grace. If we let him, he takes all these strands of life continually woven together for good. Though we may not see that, this picture of the hands-on God who is creatively and faithfully forming and shaping and redeeming everything we experience for his purposes. God redeems the course of life as we trust him with it. And so our praise and our gratitude in the midst of it when we don't see it and when we don't feel it is an act of our faith in his resurrection power, and it's taking him up on the invitation to believe in what can be. To believe that he's weaving something together for our lives of what can be. To hold fast to him, that's a radical act of faith. Third invitation. It's an invitation as a result of all this to trust in God, who is always and already at work. And we explored this theme a couple weeks ago on Wednesday Word and Prayer, but that's the heart of this psalm, really. Kevin O'Brien writes, God is not static, God is dynamic, alive, always stirring and always laboring to bring life to his beloved children. But here's my question, and I think this is a fair question. How does that translate to real life? How does it? Well, I think the psalmist answers. He says, when I called, you answered me. You greatly emboldened me. When I called. The phrase greatly emboldened carries the idea of strength of storm. And so the voice paraphrase captures it when it says, on the day I needed you, I called and you responded and infused my strength with soul. Infused my soul with strength. And the English Standard Version puts it this way, my strength of soul you increased. He meets us when we call him, but he does not just meet us, he does something that only he can do and we so need. And often it's only in hindsight that we see how he strengthened us and we see how he's met us and we see how he's come to us. This also carries the idea of having exceptional confidence, but that that confidence is not in what we can do, but in God himself. And it's not even confidence in that God's going to do something, it's just confidence in God and leaving to doing something to him. So of course, the psalmist cries out, your faithful love lasts forever. Don't let go of what your hands have made. Don't let go of what your hands have made. Don't let me go. Remember what he said in verse 7? I'm in the midst of trouble. But in the midst of trouble, he says, God, don't let go of me. Because I know you're always and you're already at work. Our faith does not exist in a vacuum from those bittersweet times. God does meet us Though not always with good feelings or circumstances or results as we desire, he meets us with strength that we otherwise do not have. And many times, we don't realize that till down the road. Here is an image of God worth holding on to, right here. In 2 Chronicles 16, these words, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed. Pastor Serena, you and your family need to hear those words. The eyes of the Lord are moving about. Our graduates need to hear those words as they wonder what their future is. The Lord is looking. The Lord is coming with strength. We all need to hear those words. The eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. And there it is. As we're fully committed to him, he meets us. With his strength. God desires to give us that strength. And sometimes that's with comfort. Sometimes that's with exuberance. Sometimes it is simply a deep resolve to get our eyes off of people and circumstances and get them onto him and find a deep resolve to hold fast to him. That is the God we need for today. And so the psalmist was right. He said, May they sing of the ways of the Lord, for the glory of the Lord is great. God is above all. He is above all. But not as one unapproachable or distant. Just the opposite. He's the only one who can reach the lowly, as we just read, and lift us up. Not with some grand and glorious demonstration of his might, but rather in the ways he meets us in the everyday lives of everyday people who every day trust him. In the common life, the uncommon God meets us. And that is why we come to this very common table. We think of the Lord's Supper and we think of the communion table, and it seems not so common for us. But in Jesus' day, it was just a common table and common elements. And this common table represents us, this God meeting us where we are. God stooping down to raise us up. This table reminds us of the God who poured out himself so that we would live. As Paul writes to the Thessalonians, he gave his life for us so that we may share in resurrection life in union with him. What an invitation to worship God. The God who can and does reach us, meeting us where we are and lifting us to himself day by day. The God who understands what we face in life. The God who gives of his life that we might find life in life. This is the God for today. And this table draws us into the God who understands and meets us right there, in life, in real life. Where is it that you meet God? need God to meet you today? Where is it? Are you running from God, or are you running toward God? Are you lost in a dark space, or are you living on the mountaintop? Are you wondering what God is calling you to do, Are you celebrating living in the calling he's given you, his purpose? The God for today, where are you today? What do you see today? Where does God need to meet you today? And where do you need to welcome him today? He welcomes us to his table, reminding us that he comes and meets us right where we are, to bring us to where he desires us to be. Let's pray together as our worship team comes. Thank you, Lord God, for your grace to us and your goodness. Now, Lord God, we would just pray that as we partake in the sacrament of communion, that you remind us, Lord God, that you became flesh and dwelt among us. We beheld your glory, but your glory looked like a cross and an empty tomb. And It's because you're the living Christ who dwells among us. We gather around this table reminding ourselves that you're not some God that's far out there, but that you meet us. You meet us in today at the point of our sin, granting us forgiveness at the point of our struggles and our despair, granting us hope at the point, Lord God, of the issues of the day and of life, granting us strength. So Lord, as we participate together in the sacrament, may we be reminded that you come to us, that you came to us, that you come to us, and that you meet us You are the God of today, and we're grateful for that. In Christ's name, amen. As we participate in the elements today, if you are at home and you have your elements prepared, I would invite you in the congregation to peel back the little cellophane first as we participate in the sacrament. On the night before Jesus was crucified. He took the bread and he broke it. And he gave it to his followers. And he said, this is my body that is given for you. And then he said, do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember what he's given to us. And let us be thankful. Let us participate together. then he took the cup and again he gave thanks to the Father and he gave the cup to his followers and he said this is the cup of my new covenant, my blood which is shed for the forgiveness of many do this in remembrance of me as we participate in the cup let us be reminded that he meets us even in the darkest place of our sin and offers us forgiveness and life eternal let us be reminded that he then calls us to give of our own lives because he gave his life for us. And let us be thankful for the forgiving, cleansing grace of Jesus. Thanks be to God. Let us partake together. I would just invite you to wrap that up in your napkin and you can deposit that in the garbage as you're leaving today. But let us... Turn to our God who turns towards us wherever we find ourselves. For he is the God for us right now. Thanks be to God. Amen. I invite you to stand as we close in worship.